Riga Conference Podcast, brought to you by Latvian Transatlantic Organization. Um, we already touched this subject before the interview. Basically, during the past uh, four years, the U.S. and European relationship has changed, and, and many uh, experts are saying that it has worsened with uh, American tariffs being imposed and uh, talks going around about Americans uh, leaving uh, European allies uh, in, in many ways. Can you describe uh, what is the current U.S.-European uh, uh, relationship now? Where do we stand now? I, I think we're at a very uncertain point right now because even though the, the Trump years are, are over for the time being, and President Biden has promised a much different and taken a much different approach to the relationship with Europe, there is still uncertainty that I see among many Europeans and questioning whether the United States can go back to being a reliable, respectable ally or if uh, Trumpism could return in the future. And that means that President Biden has a lot of work to do to restore confidence in uh, European belief and in American leadership and consistency. And we see that in, in the new administration, there are many people who uh, have deep understanding of European issues, the importance of NATO, and the importance of protecting uh, uh, American allies, such as the Baltic states, and, 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 and uh, in, in importance to deterring Russia, uh, such as Antony Blinken. Uh, at the same time, can we say that there is unilateral understanding uh, within the administration and also across uh, all representatives in, in the U.S. Congress about these issues? Can we say that U.S. has a common understanding of importance of, of these um, issues that I mentioned? I think there may be more common understanding that may be apparent to people looking at the United States from outside. If you'll remember during the Trump administration, when President Trump made the threats basically to abandon Article 5, the Article 5 commitment in the NATO treaty, the collective defense provision, if allies didn't live up to their commitments uh, financially. The response from the Congress was actually very supportive of NATO. And uh, what's interesting about this is that for, for basically the history of the alliance, it's been the, the Congress that has tended to be more demanding of the allies and more concerned about the burden sharing issue. But as soon as a president, uh, and traditionally presidents have defended the alliance and the commitment, but as soon as a president comes along who attacks that commitment, calls the commitment into question, the Congress in fact came in and very strongly supported the alliance. And in fact, in 2018, I was invited along with a couple of other uh, individuals to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about how important the alliance is to the United States. And this was a, the Foreign Relations Committee under the chairmanship of the Republicans. At the same time, while Washington is uh, has a common understanding, as you already mentioned, uh, with European allies, it can be a bit different because uh, EU member states have uh, sometimes trouble agreeing on a common foreign policy. And, and we see that sometimes uh, the, the uh, Americans have to take a lead when it comes to deterring Russia, especially. 
And one other example could be about um, uh, having a stronger opinion of uh, building Nord Stream 2 pipeline, for example. So do you see that Washington sometimes has to take the lead where Europeans are in a way just following behind and having just more opinions and, and when they're struggling to actually agree on, on some issues, uh, like I mentioned? Well, of course, there's a long, a long history here. History is always important to recall that uh, the Europeans have gotten used to, in many ways, the United States providing leadership. And even though that's a love-hate relationship there, because very often the Europeans hate the United States having uh, providing this leadership and dominating uh, European perspectives and, and choices, but when it's missing, I find that Europeans uh, would, would rather have the United States at least attempt to provide leadership, and particularly when it comes to Russia, because in dealing with Russia, the United States has far more weight, let's say, in, in many ways. Europe has important potential economic leverage with Russia, but doesn't tend to use it necessarily. You know, look at Nord Stream, for example, and in some ways there are dependencies between uh, Russia and Europe that weaken Europe's hand in dealing with Russia. The United States has uh, very few such dependencies, and therefore the United States has somewhat freer hand to, to take stronger line or approach to Russia. Now, that said, of course, there are great, great questions about the relationship between Trump and Putin, and uh, there still are great questions about what was going on there. But the fact is that the new administration under President Biden will take a far more balanced approach, has already demonstrated the willingness to impose sanctions for uh, Russian behavior, but at the same time is not going to try to create a crisis in the relationship. And so I, th I see what I think will be a kind of approach that uh, has been uh, basically part of the uh, the NATO approach to dealing with the Soviet Union and now Russia, and that is uh, providing defense and deterrence and also questioning uh, Russian behavior, but also being willing to dialogue and uh, to cooperate with Russia where cooperation is in the interest of the United States and the West. Uh, you already mentioned that uh, Washington can take a, a bit more hawkish uh, way uh, towards Russia because there's less dependency as, uh, uh, as in comparison uh, with Europe and, and Russia. Uh, so we saw that uh, after what happened to opposition leader Alexei Navalny, Americans actually worked together with uh, Europeans uh, uh, to, to create these sanctions uh, towards certain people. And, and many experts said that this showed that, uh, uh, that Americans and, and Europeans are rebuilding their relationship. At the same time, after these sanctions uh, were, were presented, our high representative in Europe, Joseph Borrell, he said that the secondary sanctions that come um, together with these uh, sanctions towards Russia, they actually affect bus uh, European businesses. And, and as he called it, the legitimate business that Europeans do uh, with, with other counter counterparts, uh, uh, particularly in Russia. So is there this common understanding that is still missing between Americans and, and Europeans? 
in, in a way, this question goes together with the last one, but maybe we can <laughs> dwell on it a, a bit more. Yeah, the, it is always the case that there are differences in, uh, on the ground in the relationship between the United States and Russia and Europe and Russia. And there are far more economic relationships and interests. And what, if you look at it, it also is a factor in the relationship with China, which is a growing topic of, of discussion between the United States and Europe. These are, are fundamental issues that have to be discussed and there has to be a willingness to reach compromise. And I think that's that's one thing where we have a huge difference between the Trump administration and now the Biden administration. President Biden has said that he's going to depend very much on multilateral cooperation and close cooperation with allies. He says that, and I'm sure he has written this, I'm quite sure I've read it from him, compromise should not be a dirty word, particularly with allies. And that's how you get progress, by making compromises, not of your very basic national interests, but around the edges, there's lots of room for compromise between the United States and Europe. And that's true in this case as well. I think the United States has to understand that European countries do have legitimate interests in their relationship with Russia. But on the other hand, uh, Borrell perhaps was perceived here in the United States as being a little bit naive and having taken quite a fall in Moscow for the naivete. And uh, that's unfortunate because he's a man with plenty of experience and just his his approach led him into uh, deep water and there was no it did no good for himself or for the European Union. Uh, this is another question I, I was about to, to ask about uh, Borrell's uh, visit to Moscow. You already mentioned a bit how it was perceived a, across the ocean. Uh, can you tell more what experts were saying, what intelligence community was talking about this? Uh, because in Europe, many said it was a diplomatic uh, failure. Uh, there were very strong words used uh, about his visit to Moscow. Can you describe more reactions uh, across the ocean in, in the U.S.? I haven't seen a lot about the what the intelligence community reaction was, but having been in that community many years ago, I've got a pretty good idea that the judgment was probably very similar to the European judgment, that it was a, a very large diplomatic failure and uh, that it was not something that was in the interest of the United States or in the interest of the European Union for that matter. It's in diplomats, uh, public officials make mistakes. And I think that this is one that that is judged in the United States as having been a mistake and perhaps a side of a little bit too much pretension. And that's one of the problems between the United States and the European Union. And that I, as, as someone who has been an analyst of the European uh, Union process for decades, actually, sometimes the EU gets carried away with uh, its own sense of importance, and that's very very often not backed up by the unity that is required behind that confidence. And right now, there are lots of areas of division among the Europeans that weaken the EU's hand, and. Uh, I think that Borrell was was caught overplaying the EU hand, and he was then embarrassed by the Russians. 
Uh, you already mentioned uh, about the visions uh, uh, within uh, society. And uh, I was looking at uh, one of your latest books, as, as you mentioned yesterday in the email, uh, Defense of the West, where you talk about preserving Western values during uh, turbulent times, such as uh, uh, former President Mr. Trump's era and, and also time of Brexit. We see that uh, during the pandemic and, um, and, and also just during these turbulent times, uh, the societies within European states and within Europe and within America, they become more, more di divided. Uh, how do you see preserving these Western values in, in such complicated times? It, it comes back to remembering that there are values there, that we aren't just uh, a transactional alliance, that the relationship among uh, Europeans and between Europeans and the United States and Canada is one that is founded on, on values. We don't always live up to those values and individual countries certainly don't always live up to those values. In fact, I would argue during the Trump administration, we were moving away from uh, living up to those values in a number of areas, including the, the rule of law, which is one of the most basic ones. But the fact is that it's important for European members of the European Union to respect the fact that their union is also based on a value foundation. And it's important for all the members of NATO to have the same sense. And this is one area, I hate to sound like a, a big proponent of the Biden administration, but for someone who works on transatlantic relations, this is a major change for in, in leadership in the United States. And this is an area where the values underlying the alliance will come into play. The United States and the alliance as a whole uh, have not always lived up to the, the values and have tolerated, for example, uh, governments inside the alliance, as we are doing now with Turkey, for example, and to some extent, some other European governments, tolerated governments that aren't necessarily living up to the highest standards set in the preamble of the North Atlantic Treaty. So there is a practical you know, set of uh, challenges for those values. That's always been the case. That uh, was the case from the very beginning when for example, Portugal was in the alliance, even though it had an authoritarian regime, but it was critically important if the United States was going to be able to reinforce European uh, militaries in the case of a conflict. And so those practical issues come into play. The geostrategic factors have to be balanced against the values. But hopefully we are now at a point where the United States and Europe can talk a little bit more about how to maintain those values and we'll have to do that to deal with the new issues that are coming along that expand way beyond uh, the military challenges that we've seen to include now the climate change as being a big issue and the pandemic being all of these things that require the highest level of cooperation between the United States and Europe. And we need to see uh, more of that than we've been seeing in recent years. So the next question goes very much in hand uh, what, what you were just talking about. Uh, I will mention again, uh, during Mr. Trump's era, there was this uh, slogan motto, America first. And, and we also saw from China that they're um, 
having this motto of uh, Made in China 2025. And the purpose of, of these projects uh, was to protect uh, interests of their own country more uh, than ever. And in a way, Brussels has decided to do something similar with, with this uh, so-called uh, project of strategic autonomy, where Europeans are going to aim for protecting uh, its, its economy and other fields even more. Um, have you uh, read about this uh, discussion and do you have any thoughts on this of Europe wanting to become more independent? Well, I, I, I focused on that issue more from the perspective of uh, European strategic autonomy and the desire for Europeans to have a greater, a greater uh, autonomy. And what concerns me about that whole concept is that when Europeans talk about autonomy, they're not talking about autonomy vis-a-vis -vis Russia or China. They're talking about autonomy vis-a-vis -vis the United States. And I, I support the idea of Europeans becoming more united and more effective inside the European Union. But I also believe that it's in Europe's interest as well as that of the United States for that uh, strong, stronger Europe to be built inside the transatlantic relationship, not outside of it. And um, sometimes this makes me feel very old, but the, the first book I wrote on on the transatlantic relationship in the early 1980s, I made this point exactly in supporting what I called then, the, for the first time, a new transatlantic bargain and uh, saying that that bargain should be a stronger, more united Europe inside the broader cooperation of the transatlantic relationship. That still is true. I don't think it's in the interest of Europe or the United States for Europeans to try to develop strategic autonomy that separates them from the United States, even if it does mean that Europe will take different perspectives on some issues from time to time, that will happen. But the point is to build it all inside a framework where compromise and cooperation on a transatlantic level becomes part of that formula. Uh, we've seen, uh, especially President uh, of France, uh, Emmanuel Macron, talking about this, uh, this idea. And he's not only talking about economic uh, autonomy and, and protecting economic interests, he's also been talking about military autonomy and, uh, in a way, building up European army. Uh, how independent can Europe be militarily while remaining in this uh, relationship, uh, transatlantic relationship that you were just talking about? Well, I'm very familiar with President Macron's approach because it's also a very familiar French approach. We can go back to Charles de Gaulle and say that we can trace everything in, in what Macron is saying and doing now back in many ways to the, to the relationship with, with de Gaulle's, let's say, rebellion against transatlantic relations and against the United States. The, the concern that I have is perhaps a double-sided concern. One is that uh, if European autonomy in the military sphere is pushed too strongly, it could provide for a division between the United States and Europe that would drive the United States out of uh, cooperation with Europe on, on uh, military affairs. Secondly, uh, a 
perhaps what should be a bigger concern of Europeans is that defense of Europe without the United States is something that uh, would require much larger military budgets of all European countries, and particularly of Germany, but of others as well, including France. And right now I have seen no studies that suggest the possibility for Europe to achieve that kind of autonomy in any kind of near-term future. And so not only do I think it's unwise politically to push too hard on that, on that approach, but it also is very impractical and not based in a realistic appreci appreciation of the facts. Going back to American foreign policy uh, in, in general and, and during the new administration uh, that we can still await, uh, China and Southeast Asian region has uh, become one of the hottest topics and it's, it's very important to, to, uh, to Washington to uh, invest in intelligence there and, and militarily. And we also see that um, uh, what started uh, during the previous administration and what might continue during this administration is withdrawal of American forces uh, in a way in Middle East. Uh, for example, in, in Afghanistan. Uh, so we see that these uh, priorities of America's foreign policy, they are changing. How far up above the priorities is Europe while these priorities are changing? Is there anything uh, that we can see as a shift in America's foreign policy in, in this sense when uh, Southeast uh, Asian region is in a way becoming more and more important? That's a good a good question, and uh, I think sometimes we for, we forget that in fact the United States has been engaged in Asia uh, since the founding of NATO. Uh, we fought uh, a couple of wars there in Korea and Vietnam, and so Asia an Asian preoccupation is not something new for the United States. The fact is that as a uh, a zone of conflict, Europe certainly was persistent uh, with the relationship with the Soviet Union through the Cold War and has been important in terms of uh, conflict with a major power, now Russia. But um, the fact is that there always has been a, a focus in American foreign policy also on Asia. Today, the priority of the relationship with China is obviously growing. I think this is increasingly recognized in Europe. And perhaps uh, Europeans feel concerned that uh, they no longer are the most important uh, conflict zone uh, going on and that Asia is becoming more of one. I think that this is perhaps too limited a perspective because to the extent that China is threatening or challenging to the United States and, and to Europe for that matter, the fact is that Europe becomes a critically important ally of the United States if Europe recognizes that it is in that relationship as well. And so you can say, we're not as focused, the United States is not as focused on, on, uh, on Europe from one point of view, but from another point of view, Europe is critically important. If the United States does have a challenging relationship with China, we are much stronger if we are working on that relationship and cooperation with our European allies rather than uh, fighting each other over economic interests or, or other perspectives. And so that I think it requires a, a different a shift of focus and a shift of priorities. 
That doesn't mean diminishing Europe's importance. I would say in many ways for the United States, it means Europe is more important, particularly if Russia and China tend to start working together, as for example, they're, they just announced that they're doing in terms of uh, the moon and uh, a, a base establishing an operational base on the moon. Uh, this is something that I'm not saying that it necessarily is a huge challenge or threat to the West, but it is a sign of the fact that the United States and Europe are both going to be better off working with each other rather than working against each other. All right. Thank you so much uh, for, for all your insights. Maybe there's something that uh, you wanted to mention on, on any of these issues that we discussed, uh, that, that you talked about. Um, maybe there's something that I didn't ask you. Oh, I think you asked uh, excellent questions and um, I think we managed to touch on most of the important issues. Remember, you're hearing from a, someone who has always been a strong believer in the importance of transatlantic relations. I continue to believe that. I just think we have to be realistic about how they fit into the overall scale of things. And it is a challenging time. So it's, uh, it's something that I think we, on both sides of the Atlantic, will be looking to see how the Biden administration manages this. And in fact, whether the United States is able to come back and recover from some of what we lost during the Trump years. Yeah, there are indeed turbulent times ahead of us, especially with, uh, with all the other challenges as, as the COVID pandemic and, and of course, uh, as you mentioned, climate change and, and also other issues. Thank you so much for, for joining uh, this uh, interview and thank you for all your uh, very useful insights on, on all these issues. I hope we can um, meet again online or, or in person uh, sometime in the future again. Thank you so I much. I look forward to that. Thank you. Riga Conference Podcast brought to you by Latvian Transatlantic Organization.